0: So about a week ago, I needed air in my tyres because I've been on the beach, you know how it is, and you've got to put air back in them. And we, I, w- I was wanting to do it quickly, you know, it's one of those moments where I was like, Evie's shaking her head because she knows it's coming. Uh, I wanted to do it quickly, so I pulled into the service station thinking, you know, you know I'm just thinking this is like a pit stop and I'm a firm Formula One racing car, it's going to happen quickly, you know. I, I pull in, but as I pull in, someone else pulls in just in front of me, they get the hose and they start doing their tyres. And um, they're going slowly, they're going slowly. And Evie's with me and she sees me getting frustrated. I can't remember what you said to me, but she pointed out how inappropriate it was that I was getting frustrated that someone else was putting air in their tyres. And as I reflect on that moment, I find myself thinking, yeah, I'm not very good at waiting. Like, how are you at waiting? How do you go when you're forced to wait, when you don't want to wait? As a culture, as a society, I don't think we're typically great at it. It's almost a becoming a lost art, being able to wait. How do you go waiting for your coffee? How do you go waiting for news or an email that's meant to be coming? How do you go at waiting generally? Um, in a wait, um, there's a level of discomfort because you just you want it to be over. It's possible to be waiting in really hard circumstances as well. You know, we're waiting to hear, this isn't really hard, but we're waiting to hear news about a venue you can kind of live in nervousness, kind of waiting. What's going to happen? When's that going to come? It's meant to happen last Wednesday and now this Friday. We're kind of in a bit of a waiting zone in the midst of COVID. It's like, well, what's the news going to be every day? Like, are we going to be able to meet this Sunday? Are we going to go back online? Is that what's going to happen? Um, it, you can be waiting for the pathology to come back and the results to come in to know what the deal is. And, and it can be that when you're waiting, sometimes in very painful circumstances, it's very difficult. Can you think of a time when you've had to wait and you've had to wait in really painful situations? Maybe you're in one right now. Maybe that's where you are, you're waiting. As we dive into 1 Samuel, we meet Hannah and we hear about the events of or some of the events of her life. And it really kind of raises the concept of, you know, waiting in painful circumstances. And we're going to get the chance to do two things as we as we dive into that passage. Is number one to think how, how to wait. When you're in discomfort and pain, how do you go about waiting? And how to respond when the deliverance comes? What do you do when the wait is over? So we're just going to look at those two things tonight. And it's not because Hannah is the perfect model example of how to do everything well, but there's lessons for us to learn as we observe um, what is the case for Hannah. So how to wait? How do we wait in discomfort and in pain? I think one thing we see here is this. You sit in the pain with the Lord. This is not everything about waiting, but I want you to consider this one. You sit in the pain with the Lord. And, and I raise that because I, I, do think, I do think that's a key thing that we see Hannah do here in chapter 1. Now, I'm talking about Hannah. And if you've if not been digging into this series, you're thinking, who's Hannah? Um, it's a series on Samuel... Um, but it goes Samuel, and then it goes Saul, then it goes David, then it goes Solomon. And then after a whole bunch of other kings, finally we get the king, Jesus. And so that's the point in history we are. A man named Samuel arrives. But if you're new to biblical things, that may not mean anything to you either. So where does Samuel come in the point in history? Well, just really briefly, what comes before Samuel is, well, God first gathers the people through Abraham's offspring. But then those people find themselves in slavery in Egypt, and through Moses, God redeems them and releases them from slavery so that they can worship Him. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they move into the promised land, and the idea is they're meant to live as God's people in God's place, under God's rule, with the Lord as their king. And they start out okay. But then they get proud and then they worship the idols of the surrounding nations. And what we get is this continued cycle of God's people turning from him and needing someone to come and deliver them and turn them around again. So God sends judges, judge after judge after judge, up until this point. And you get get this declaration um, throughout the book of Judges before you get to 1 Samuel that says this, In those days Israel had no king. And everyone just did as he saw fit, or something like that. Meaning, Israel just basically did what they wanted to do. The problem wasn't really that they didn't have a king. The problem was that they weren't living with the Lord as their king. But God's going to give them a king to help them live under him. And that's what we're going to look at here in 1 Samuel. But the transitional figure is this guy named Samuel, who's like the final judge. He's also a bit of a priest. Uh, He's also a bit of a prophet. And he's going to transition Israel to having kings. Solomon's a really significant figure in the history of how God saves his people. And, sorry, Samuel is, is that what I said? What did I say, Solomon? I'm just going to try and confuse you here. Solomon is a really significant... Samuel is a really significant figure. And Samuel comes to us through, lo and behold, his mum and her name is Hannah. And we get introduced to Hannah here. In chapter 1, Hannah is waiting in painful circumstance and the painful circumstance is kind of twofold. It's her marriage and her children's situation. How could a marriage and children's situation ever be painful, you say? Well, this was the deal for Hannah. She existed in a polygamous marriage. It means she was, more, she was one of two wives. You can pick that up in verse 2. Her husband's name is Elkanah and in verse 2, he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other was called Peninnah, or however you might pronounce it. So Hannah is one of two wives. And when you actually get down to verse 6 and verse 7, her other wife is described as her rival wife. I mean, if marriage is not hard enough, what do you reckon it would be like to have a rival in your marriage that you've got to live with day in, day out? She's got a rival. Wow. Wow. And then there's favouritism in the marriage too. Alcanna actually does love Hannah more and he keeps reminding her of that. So there's favouritism in the marriage, as you'd kind of expect that one would be the favourite. And you might kind of read this right up front and ask that question. So does the Bible actually support polygamy? Is that, is that the okay thing? Well, sometimes you get the mention of these types of things without explicit condemnation of it. Um, you might call that silence in the midst of a story. That does not mean agreement. So we'll get a bit of that as we go through Kings. You, you know, we'll get mentions of situations like this without condemnation on it. But that does not mean God agrees with this. It's clearly not according to God's initial design in creation where he makes one man and he gives her just one woman. And that's plenty. That's enough. And that's his design. And actually to have more than one wife in a marriage produces problems just like this. Someone's the favourite, the others are the rivals and this is the painful circumstance that Hannah is living in. Now you add to that the fact that Hannah's rival wife has been able to have children but she has not. You see that's what it goes on. Paninna had children but Hannah had none. So Hannah is struggling with being barren. In verse 5, it's described there that God had closed her womb. So she's got infertility issues, which is a very painful grief. And it's common through the ages. And some of you know it all too well. There's an extra dilemma for being barren in the ancient world. And that is this. If you were unable to have sons... Um, you'd find yourself in a pretty tricky situation because sons were the ones who would ensure not just the survival of your family name, but the survival of your family and the business and its longevity. So if you couldn't produce sons, it ended up being somewhat of a public shame on a wife. And Hannah's feeling that. And on top of feeling that shame and that heartache, she's also being teased by this other wife. And you can see that there in verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And funnily enough, a lot of the provoking seems to happen when once a year they go up to Shiloh to worship at the festival and offer sacrifices. That's when a lot of the teasing happens. Did you pick up on that when you read through there? That's partly because when you go up for these worship services, you end up offering sacrifices for all the different members of your family. So that would be the moment, wouldn't it? Where you get the painful reminder that you don't have kids to make offerings and sacrifices for. It's almost like Christmas and Easter, where the good things are amplified and are extra good. But if you're suffering with hard things, particularly family things, wow, Christmas and Easter can be extra hard. It's like the pain is amplified. And every time Hannah goes up with her family to Shiloh to worship the Lord, the pain is just amplified. And this is the moment we catch Hannah in where she's feeling it and she's not trying to hide it and she's just expressing the grief. This is the situation Hannah is in. What does she do? Well, I want want to put to you, she sits in the pain with the Lord. She sits in it. She acknowledges it. She feels it. I mean, look at verse 7. She's described as that that she she wept and would not eat. That might have been a deliberate fasting because she's feeling so much pain and grief. Like they're at the festival where you're meant to share a meal. That's what you do as part of offering sacrifices. But she just sat and she would not eat. You get to verse 10 and it's described that that she's in deep anguish and she's weeping bitterly. I don't know if you've ever felt that kind of depth of anguish. Verse 11, she admits in, in, and she speaks about us herself. She says, your, your servant's misery. She says, like, I'm in misery here. And in verse 15 and 16, she talks about um, being deeply troubled. Um, She's in great anguish and grief, it says, verse 16. So the first thing I'd want to just notice on the way through here is what she doesn't do is deny what she's experiencing in her emotions. And that's worth acknowledging because some of you and some of us are not great at this. You're not good at acknowledging the reality of what you're really feeling. But she doesn't deny her feelings, she doesn't pretend she's not feeling that way. It would be tempting for her to do so, and it's tempting for us to actually deny our feelings. It can be that you've, you've, um, you've got certain emotions that when you feel them, you say to yourself, well, that's a bad emotion, so I'm not going to acknowledge that emotion, I'm going to pretend that's not happening and I'm just going to put on a brave face and not acknowledge that feeling And pretend like it's not happening. Is that what you do with your feelings? It's pretty hard to acknowledge a feeling when it's really deep, and and you've got associations with it being bad. Sometimes, as Christians, you can say, "Well, it's just not right for Christians to feel that way because Christians are meant to feel joyful, or Christians are meant to not feel fearful in any way." You know, so you can tell yourself, "Well, that's not right," and so you don't acknowledge that you really are scared, or you really are angry. Or you really are super sad, you know? She actually just somehow gives herself permission to actually feel her feelings and she's acknowledging, she's verbalising them. Sometimes we can't acknowledge our feelings because the people around us tell us that we shouldn't be feeling that way. You know, maybe you grew up in a family where you just kind of never really acknowledged your feelings or when you did express your feelings, you were told, no, you shouldn't feel that way. And, And did you notice how... Um, Hannah's husband Elkanah attempts to encourage her, but ends up basically saying to her, "No, no, you're not meant to feel that way." Like, look what he says. Bless him. And this is your classic husband, isn't it? Trying to comfort his wife. We don't know what we're doing, ladies. All right. Look at what he says here, verse eight. Um, her husband Elkanah would would say to her, Hannah, "Why are you weeping? <laughs> um, why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted?" don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Like, he's doing his best, isn't he? You've got me. Why do you need... Oh, he's trying his best. Why are you sad? And what's behind that is you shouldn't be. You don't need to be. And it might be that you've got people around you who, when you express your feelings, they go, no, you shouldn't. So there's all kinds of realings reasons why we bottle up how we feel and you don't acknowledge it but you won't do yourself any favours and eventually you won't do anyone around you any favours if you can't just acknowledge your feelings and sit in those feelings express those feelings in a, in a um, in an appropriate way but it's not just sit in the pain you notice what i said sit in the pain with the lord you know which is actually to allow him to be the solution Allow him to be the one who comes to you. Which means acknowledging the pain, but then not medicating it some other way. Which is what... That's our other temptation. trying to get rid of a bad feeling. Remove it. Numb it. Drown it out. It's so tempting to do so. It's always been tempting to do so. In fact, the priest thinks that's what Hannah is doing here. Do you notice what he says when he sees her um, you know, praying and pouring her soul out to the Lord? He assumes... She's what? She's drunk. Yeah, did you pick that up there in verse 12 or verse 14? How long are you going to stay drunk? Put your wine away. So he assumes she's drinking and she's drunk and that's how she's solving her problems. But she's not. That's that's not what she's doing at all. But that can be the very thing we do as well. You try and get rid of a feeling by medicating it in some way with some type of substance. Well, there's lots of forms of escapism that we can get used to using. You can entertain yourself silly to just be distracted from a feeling. You can exercise yourself silly to try to get the endorphins going. You can just consume food or you can consume products online. Anything to just get the endorphins happening because you just can't sit in the pain none of us are great at it but I tell you what when you do that and when I do that what what you're doing is you're applying what I call God blockers catch this one for a minute you're in pain you don't know how to just sit in it and stay in it so you apply something else but as you apply that something else to numb the pain you effectively block God from being able to come to you and be your deliverance And and we do it. They're God blockers. So when I say sit in your pain with the Lord, it's to sit in it, feel the discomfort of it, acknowledge it and wait and allow God to come for you and be your deliverance. Turn toward the Lord in a painful waiting circumstance, not on the Lord, not turn on Him and not turn away from Him. Turn toward Him and allow him to come to you and bring the solution. Now, as I say that, some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about, Tim. I don't know what you mean by waiting and allowing God to come. and. It's probably because you've got a whole range of God blockers you've been practising for years and years and years. And we all do have, they're, they're effective, they fix things momentarily, but they stop you being able to experience how the Lord can come for you Hannah sits in a pain she doesn't numb it she doesn't ignore it she actually just basically turns her face towards the Lord and you can see there in verses 11 through to verse 16 you know she's described there in verse 15 what does she says I'm i, I Pour out, I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord. That's what I'm doing here. In her tears and in her prayers, she's pouring out her soul to the Lord. Look, look, at, her, look at her prayer in verse 11. Um, she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty. So she starts by saying, you're the Almighty One, which means the great warrior who's powerfully able to do anything and step into any situation. Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me. And do not forget your servant, but give her a son. And then she makes a bit of a vow. And, uh, and then I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But basically, that's why I don't cut my hair. All right? No, it was some type of a symbol back in the ancient world that, that, a, that a person's dedicated to the service of the Lord is that you let their beard grow and you let their hair grow and there's just beauty in it, isn't there? All right? beards and stuff beards come up a bit in one samuel it's good we'll get there um she praised this prayer which is basically her just crying out turning her face to the lord not trying to solve the problem any other way and just calling out to him would you look upon me would you turn your face towards me would you be my solution would you come to me i'm just going to sit in this with you yeah and and actually before the solution comes there's a bit of a change that happens for her. She gets a level of assurance that God's heard her prayer. The priest, I think, assures her of that, which I think is along the lines of, yeah, God's a God who knows, he sees, he hears, and he's able to act. And you can see that she actually ends up lifting her face. You can see down there, verse 18, halfway through, she she, she went her way and she ate something and her face was no longer downcast. The next morning, she gets up and she worships um, and she goes back to her home. So there's there's this moment or a season where she sits in her pain and she's with the Lord and waits on him and pours her heart out to him and it's real and it's genuine she doesn't try and solve it any other way and then there's a washing your face getting up eating food and getting on with the life of worshiping God yeah It's not just getting on with everything else that would distract you, but a life of, well, she actually worships here, but then goes on in obedience towards the Lord. So we've got to get on. We've got to keep living. But it's to live worshipping him with an obedient life while we wait, lift your head, move on. But I tell you what, learn how to have your moments. Learn how to have your seasons where you sit in your pain and you do it with the Lord and you learn to experience how he can be your solution how he can be your strength, how he can be your comforter like no one and nothing else can come close to. And I don't say this as the one who's worked out how to do it perfectly, but I say it as someone who's convinced that our God is almighty and he's an almighty comforter. Yeah? So how do you wait? key thing here, sit in your pain with the Lord yeah second thing how do you respond when deliverance comes how do you go when the wait is over you might it might be easy to kind of go oh well that took a while finally you know that should have come a long time ago we can feel a little bit entitled that things would get sorted out and when they do get sorted out we're like geez that took you a while god but yeah i'm glad you're on the job now mate that's not what she does. It's really cool to see what Hannah does when God actually does respond and bring a, bring a beautiful deliverance. And just a little side note here. Have you noticed how all the, a lot of the really significant figures in the history of God's people have come from women who were barren for many, many years? You know, you think back to Abraham and his wife Sarah who's old and barren and then you get Jacob and you get Rachel, same thing. You get Rebecca, same thing. You get Elizabeth with John the Baptist, same thing. You get here, you get Hannah. It's it's as though God actually almost makes a habit of knowing how to use us in our weakness and in our limits and in our distress to bring about his wonderful plans. What do you reckon? Is he able to do that? Absolutely. and He's able to do that with us in our season here as well. Not pretending that anyone here is going to be some great prophet. But he's going to be able to use us in our weakness and in our limits to bring about what he intends to bring about for his own glory. How does Hannah respond when the deliverance comes? Well, you see, she does end up being able to... and It's, it's, it's beautiful language here. It's worth reading. So in the course of time... Oh, no, no, just come back a bit further. Where is it? Early the next... There it is. Look, verse 19. Early the next morning, they worshipped the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah. This just is lovely, isn't it? There you go. It's in the Bible. Making love in the Bible. And the Lord remembered her. And so in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked for the Lord. And then she actually, what, what she goes on to do is dedicate Samuel to the Lord, which is actually to follow the vow, the promise that she'd made, that she would do if God gave her a son. So something kind of unique about what she does here, um, there's particular circumstances, Samuel's a very special figure in history, but still she acknowledges that when the son arrives, that he's from the Lord and she offers him immediately to the Lord. Yeah. Three years later, that next little section, after he's weaned and after he's grown up a little bit, she takes him up to Shiloh, to the temple, and she leaves him there to grow up learning how to be a priest in the temple. Now, some of us read that and we just think, how on earth? You know, it may be triggering for some of you. It's huge. But there's there's something for us here to note, and that is the concept of when the Lord provides and the Lord delivers, whatever He delivers or provides, are you able to dedicate it to Him? Are Are you able to acknowledge He's the one who's brought it, and are you able to offer it to Him for service? And particularly speaking about kids, children belong to the Lord. And they should, at least in a sense, be handed over to Him. They do not belong to you. Or me. They've been entrusted for a few short years, if that's what God does. And therefore for his own namesake. To raise them in him, for him, not for you. So if he gives your kids, offer them to him. Raise them for him. Don't worship them. Don't worship the thing that's being formed that you call your family. It's the most common Christian idol. Worship the Lord. Offer everything that he entrusts to you, to him, including kids. And while you're at it, dedicate everything you've got to the Lord. Offer everything that you have and use everything you have for his service. Ask, what's in my hands? What have I got? What are my abilities? What are my resources? What have I been entrusted with? Dedicate it to him. You might think, why? (laughs) Because he's the giver. He's the one who gave you everything you've got. He's the one who sustains it. And he gave it to you that you would honour him with it. Um, Romans 12 is one of those classic verses. Romans 12 verse 1. In view of God's mercies, which is in view of all that he's done, and particularly what he's done with Jesus, in view of that, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Offer yourself and everything you've got dedicate all that you have to him he's the giver so how do you respond when the deliverance comes first thing and here's the second thing which will be the final thing how do you respond when deliverance comes dedicated to him and acknowledge he's the one who brought it he brought the end of the weight whatever it is he brought it and secondly count it as a small salvation or a little deliverance that points you to the big salvation and the ultimate deliverance. And that is what Hannah models beautifully to us here in the prayer of chapter 2. I mean, have you have you read that prayer? It's craziness. Like when good things happen for us, the easiest thing to do, I think, is to just be thankful and be grateful and, even, and, and be grateful to God. But Hannah does more. She starts with her personal situation and gratefulness and she's thanking God for it, but then she goes somewhere big with it and we have got to see where she goes and make sure we do that too when small salvations come and little deliverances come, that we go somewhere big. Let's have a look at where that big place is. Hannah's prayer. Look how she starts. Verse 1. My heart rejoices in the Lord, in the Lord my horn, that's her strength, it's lifted up. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. She's talking there about the fact that the Lord's opened a womb, given her a son. It's It's like a little salvation for her. It's her situation. And she's just saying, my heart is rejoicing. Look at what he's done for me. But then she immediately goes from that to talking about the character of the God who's brought that to her. So it's like, a, it's like a really immediate reflection. She's not just stuck on the, this is good and I've got it and it's awesome and I love it and I've got it and it's awesome and it's mine and it's great. And she doesn't get stuck there. And we can do that when good things come. She goes straight to acknowledging the character of the God who brought it. And then beyond that to the bigger thing that he brought, brings for us in the salvation of Jesus. So let's, let's look at how she does that. Look at verse 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Look, she goes straight to him, his character, yeah? He's holy. There's no one like him. There's no other God that can do these things. There's nothing that he can be compared to. He's the rock. You can't find security anywhere else like you can find it with the Lord. He's worthy of your trust. It's like as soon as she gets what she gets, she's like, look at what our God is like. Look at his character. And then she goes on, and then she, and I, th- I think she points out a bunch of things about God. He's holy, he's, he's omniscient, he's a warrior, he's, he's, he's the controller, he's the creator. Like it just peels down through. Like just real quickly, let's fly through. Look at, look at verse three. Do not keep um, talking proudly and let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. In other words, our God is the God who knows. And sees everything. He saw me in my misery. He heard me in my cries. He sees the accusations and the teasing that's come upon me. He sees it all. He's omniscient. He doesn't miss a thing. Yeah. He's the one who knows all and says, and there's a little bit of a warning in there to her rival, I think, you know. Um, watch your mouth. You know, you're gonna speak those things about me. God sees it. And it's a warning to all self-sufficient boasting. You know, we think we're in control. No, no, there's a God who's watching, and and He's a, He's a, He's the one who acts. He doesn't just listen and watch. He acts. Look at verse four and five. Um, the bows of the warriors are broken. Those who are st- those who st- are stumbled. Sorry, those who stumbled are armed in strength. Um, with strength, those who were full hire themselves out for food, those who were hungry are hungry no more, she who is barren has borne seven children, he who has, has had many sons pines away. It's, it's like it gets straight into describing that God is the one who doesn't just watch but steps in and he actually changes situations. He's the judge who comes and he disarms his enemies and he pulls down the proud and self-sufficient and he exalts and he lifts up his own. He's able to actually lift up his humble servants. And you go on verses 6 and 7 and it's the God who's directing all things. Look at this. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. He sends poverty and wealth. He's the one who controls all of life. And it might be that you've, you've grown up with or you've somehow adopted a, 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 like an overly simplistic view that God does good things, Satan does bad things. And that's just kind of where you're stuck a little bit. No, no. God closes wombs and opens wombs. He sends wealth and poverty. You know, your life is in His hands. Yeah? And that's a mystery to us sometimes, why He'd send certain things our way. It's frightening to think how that, how, you know, how could God stand behind this even indirectly in any way? But He's in control. And he's powerfully directing all things. And it's it's because he's the creator. Look at verse 8, final part. For the foundations of the earth are the lords. On them he set the world in place. So you step back from this and what I see is this. Hannah begins with her personal situations and praises for a little deliverance that comes her way. But then really quickly gets onto the character of God. And then moves even beyond that to the ultimate thing that he's done. And she ends up being more excited... About final salvation and judgment than she does about her own little small, what you might call a small salvation, a little deliverance. I mean, have a look at verses nine and ten. It, t- it talks about salvation of you know what, what, what God's going to ultimately do. He'll guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. This is where she ends up in her prayer. (laughs) It's not just thanks for a son. She ends up just going big and like, this God of incredible character is the one who's going to bring final salvation and final judgment. And that's what she's most excited about. That's where she goes. Can you see how she's directed from the situation in her life? to the big situation for all the earth and actually the big situation for her and for you and I and everyone who's ever lived and that is one day we will stand before the one who's made us and all that will matter is whether you have humbly and faithfully bowed the knee to him as Lord and for us put our trust in Jesus and become his follower. That's all that will matter and that day is coming. Hannah, Let's this little salvation that she experiences point her to the big one. It's like a little wink that she's spotting along the way. It's brilliant what she's received, but it's tiny almost in comparison to the ultimate salvation. Yeah. And here's where I just want to kind of leave you. It's possible that you can receive from God and a wait can be over and a blessing can come and and you can actually just easily get caught up in obsessing over the tiny salvations, obsessing over seeing them as ultimate and being focused on God helping us simply in the here and now. All the while, what he's doing is, is to love us and care for us but ultimately point us to the big thing he's done by sending Jesus so that our sin could be forgiven and we could be rescued for all eternity. Hannah doesn't get stuck on what you might call the preview or the sample or a foretaste. She actually sees it as a downscaled version of the real salvation that is to come. Her personal experience appoints her to the ultimate deliverance that comes through Jesus. And I want to leave you with that one. And I wonder whether, I wonder whether it could be a, a framework that we could grow in where we Allow little salvations, where we allow small deliverances to begin for us as a point of rejoicing, but then move to reflection on the character of God, and then ultimately point us to rejoicing in salvation in Jesus and the forgiveness of sin, and eternity and the big things. Have you have you received anything recently? Has a wait recently come to an end? Has there been a blessing that's come? And have you allowed that small salvation, you could call it, a little deliverance to point you to the big one where we're meant to be focusing our rejoicing and celebrating because it's the ultimate salvation. That God has come for us by his mercy and his grace through his son Jesus to remove our sin and enable us to live with him and enjoy him for an eternity. Let me pray to that end. Father God, we need the work of your spirit to help us here we get super caught up in the small things because they just seem massive. The the things of this life, the things we'd like solved, the the health that we want brought. And it's okay that we cry out to you. And Lord, we trust that you're able to come and and bring healing and you're able to come and step into situations. You're the Almighty. But Lord, as you do that, Help us rejoice and move on to rejoicing in your character and the ultimate thing you've done in Jesus. Help us to continually be pointed toward and focusing on rejoicing in our salvation, our sin removed, what we have in you now by the Spirit and what we will see finally, face to face, full-blown, immediate presence of you forever, what we were created for. We love you, Lord. We need you. Please work by your Spirit in us. Amen.